0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Jamie Dixon. Uh, Jamie is a coach, a trainer, an author, a storyteller, um, and I have read one of his books, uh, Overcome and Get It Done, Uh, partly the story of how he managed to write a book in 24 hours and uh, (laughs) all the techniques that he uses in being such a a productivity powerhouse. Um, He's also got a new book coming out called The Story Habit. Am I getting that right? Um, which um, we can touch on some of those themes uh, living in the midst of a lockdown in Shanghai right now. Um, But Jamie, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be with you. Yes, a a fellow Brit expat in uh, in China.
1: (laughs) 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 Yes, I'm having a lot of these calls at the moment as I've I've got a lot of time on lockdown (laughs) in Shanghai right now. It's good to connect with people. Right. And you were just telling me you're, uh, there's, there's
0: five other of you in a small apartment yes. um, and you're <laughs> remarkably, in the middle of a lockdown, remarkably sane, it seems to me, and poised. So you're doing something right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, well, I mean, we, just before we came on the show, we, we, I, I mentioned there's probably a couple of themes I'd love to get into. One is around productivity. Uh, mm-hmm. for, for a lot of people, that's uh, an important topic. Um, and the other is, is storytelling. So I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on both. Um, mm. so, so I've read this book, Overcome and Get It Done, Productivity Principles, that enabled me to write uh, this book in 24 hours. Um, where I guess, where do we, we start with that? Where did your interest in productivity um, begin? Um, mm. And, and, and where, how did this challenge come about? Maybe we should start there.
1: I I guess my interest in productivity, you know, I I guess it began when I first came to China um, because I I was working. I was working as an English teacher at that time and I really, really wanted to learn Chinese uh, and I wanted to maximize the time I had to learn Chinese. So I was doing a lot of experimenting at that time with, uh, you know, how to put aside time and how to make the most of that time and, and learn in the most effective way. And that just evolved over the course of more than a decade um, to, you know, to where I am now. I've been working uh, independently for eight years now. And um, for anyone who, who works independently, uh, you'll know that it's a dream for a long, long time until you begin it. And then it quickly becomes overwhelming <laughs> and you, you either... You either get really productive or you just die. Um, so I, you know, I had to learn how to, be pro- how to be very productive. And this book in particular was was really a challenge from a friend because um, I wrote my first book, Shaping Pubs: How to Design and Deliver Practical Training. I wrote that in six years, and that's not very productive. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a lot of time, a lot of things I wrote, which I threw away. Um, and in the end, I just kind of gave myself a deadline and said, to hell with it. I'm just getting it done. Um, then after that, I immediately started writing my next book, The Story Habit. I spent a year writing the first draft. And when I finished my first draft, uh, I reached out to my friend at Yuri in Singapore. And I told him, I finally finished my first draft. And I said, you know, my first book took me, uh, took me four years to write the first draft, six years in total. This one's just taken me one year, so I'm getting faster. And he said, why don't you, you know, why don't you share a bit more about how you've got more productive? Because a lot of people are really interested in, you know, writing books, designing online courses as well, which is something I do. Um, And, you know, maybe you can share what you've learned about productivity. And I took on his challenge and I said, well, how about I do this? How about I write and publish a book in 24 hours. Uh, and he said, yeah, go for it. And you know, we started this little m- movement called 24 let's go. Uh, it, and the movement died off after a few months. We did like two rounds of it and we got a few people uh, interested in it and, and joining with us to focus on one task in a 24 hour period. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I set aside like a 24 hour block within two days to go and stay in a hotel. And just write the book and keep updating on social media, and then finally published it. And I was I was really really happy when I actually did it. It was a really really good feeling. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It must have been. And uh, and how did you how did you sustain it for twenty
1: four hours? That a lot of coffee, or was it? What, well, what kept you
0: going.
1: I mean, it sounds horrific twenty four hours. It, it was actually more like fifteen hours, and there were a lot of breaks. I had a lot of breaks. I had a good night's sleep. Um, I I was getting up and doing a lot of yoga, a lot of movement in between. I had a lot of coffee, a lot of tea. I was fueling myself with the right snacks. So it wasn't anything that would like give me a sugar crash, no junk food whatsoever. It was like nuts and stuff like that. Just to keep my energy levels. I don't know what the word. Well, steady. Uh, yep. throughout the whole time. So I was being very, very cautious of that. Um, I made sure to go out for walks in the park opposite my hotel. I was staying in the beautiful Park Hotel in Shanghai, which used to be the, the tallest building in Asia back in 1936. So it's a really lovely art deco building. And just opposite it, it is People's Park, in, uh, which is a beautiful park. So I went for a few little strolls there. It was a nice Starbucks, just a just around the corner. So Hi. I got my, my fuel. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, the kind of conditions I set up for myself ha- helped a lot, uh, but also the way I approached it um, helped a lot as well. So I, I knew from experience uh, with university, for example, uh, everyone has to do a dissertation in their last year. And you get, in theory, you get a year to write your dissertation. But what happens is everyone leaves it to the last day and they panic. And then somehow they write a dissertation in one day. And I knew, I knew that it was possible. Um, and, a, and a dissertation is about 10,000 words. So I set myself a goal of, you know, I'll write a 10,000 word book. And I then broke it down into chunks. So uh, I would write, uh, I'd write each section and I'd make it, I think it was about 500 words or 700 words per section. So I, I, and then I I was using a, uh, an app called Scrivener, which is specifically for writing books and you can, you can set goals. So it tracks your progress. So every time I started a new section, it says you've written 383 out of 700 words and blah, blah, blah. And, and seeing that progress and knowing you're not far away from completing that section just keeps pushing you forward. It actually became really addictive in the end. (laughs) And uh, I I was, yeah, I I didn't find it that exhausting. I I found I was just buzzing throughout the whole time. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine that you you kind of have this goal and then what it's like, okay, so if I get to the end of this
0: section that I could like have some nuts or I can go for a walk or is is that right. You're, you're, you're giving yourself that, that treat. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. There there were scheduled breaks throughout the whole time. There were like two zoom calls that I had with, with my friend Yuri and other people who are taking part in the 24 let's go challenge. So I had those to look forward to. So there were all of these little milestones and in the lead up to the milestone, like, Oh, if I can just squeeze this one more section in before I get to the milestone. And I think that there's one thing, um, that I have to emphasize that made this book really, really easy is I've been, I've been, um, I, you know, I've been training people on productivity for, for almost a decade now. Um, and so a lot of the ideas in the book are things that I've been talking about for a decade. I've just never written them down. So they were already there. And so, you know, just getting them down was, was the focus of the task. And the difference with this book and the other two books that I've written is that there's not a lot of structure. It's more a, a stream of consciousness. Uh, here's one principle, and here's you know, what I think about this principle, and uh, a story, an example, a metaphor, uh, are some tips on how to use this principle. Uh, so in that way, it was very, very easy for me to write, actually. Whereas the other two books that I'm writing, uh, well, that have written and I'm currently writing, they have a lot more structure to them. Um, and it, it, the structure is getting the structure down takes it literally takes years, uh, years of putting stuff out there, and then finding the gold, getting rid of the dirt and refining and tweaking, getting some feedback, refining again. So with this, with this book, I didn't do that. I just, I just wrote and then put it out and. Um, I, I think that the fact that I emphasize, you know, I use these principles to write this book in 24 hours um, alerts the reader to, you know, this is what the book is about and, and manages the reader's expectations as well. Uh, and, you know, I found it's got some pretty good reviews, actually. People really like it. So, yeah, it worked out really well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a certain
0: sections of it I was mentioning to you that I found, you know, very valuable and, and underlined Um, Mm. and something just as you're describing the process that comes to mind from the book is, is this distinction you make between motivation and, and willpower and, and the metaphor you introduce around that. I wonder if you could describe that and to what extent that
1: played out in the 24 hours. Yeah. So, um, motivation and willpower, uh, never, ever depend on willpower is basically my motto. I, I believe discipline is the art of making hard things easy. It's not the art of doing hard things uh, because you burn out so easily that way. And I know I I don't think I have a lot of willpower actually. I just depend on on making hard things really really easy. Uh, so the the key to uh, well the key to finding the motivation for doing things. One key is to ask yourself. You know, what am I doing this for? Uh, Is this really, really important to me? And I remember when I was learning Chinese, so I speak Chinese fluently now, and I learned Chinese really quickly when I first came to China. I was conversational in about three months. And (laughs) And, you know, a part of the reason that happened was because of the way I was learning. I was in the country. I was speaking to people every day. But another part was my motivation. Uh, I was with other foreigners who were also studying at the same time as me, but just didn't, didn't make as much progress because they didn't really care. And my motivation was, uh, was almost desperation, actually, because I had come out of university with a degree in something I wasn't interested in at all, uh, environmental science, by the way. And I, I didn't have any career goals I, I didn't even want to work. I wasn't the slightest ambitious, uh, slightest bit ambitious. Uh, and English teaching was just my way of you know, having fun whilst making a bit of money. But I realized I couldn't do that forever and I didn't have any other plan. And China seems to be a country with a great economy um, and lots of opportunities. So maybe if I learn Chinese, then I'll get lots of opportunities, and I can't think of anything any better way to have a better future. So I had a lot of reasons to learn Chinese, and because I had those reasons, I became almost obsessed with it. Uh, I was completely obsessed with it. I, I, I would sit in my apartment, reading a textbook. I didn't have a smartphone or a laptop. I just read my textbook, and I'd learn how to ask, you know, what's the time in Chinese as soon as i learn a few phrases i go out on the street and use them and getting that you know having that little success in that moment where i've just learned something i've used it and i understood and this is amazing that kind of builds you up even more so um so starting with that uh starting with that reason finding that reason for what is this really going to give me what is this really for and really getting very, very clear on that. That is where motivation comes from. And when you have that, you can then set up a lot of structures and systems and processes, conditions that can then sustain that motivation. But if you don't have that reason to do something, you will just switch to willpower. And willpower is where you have to force yourself. And I, I think an example is, you know, I used to play football a few years ago. And if I knew I was going to be playing That's football, soccer on, for our Americans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> soccer for Americans. <laughs> if I knew I was going to be kicking a ball on Sunday, then Wednesday I would go for a run because I knew I had to be in good condition. Otherwise, I wouldn't enjoy um, kicking a ball about. Um, but if I knew I wasn't going to be playing football on Sunday, then Wednesday would come and be like, ah, I can't be asked with this. I just don't want to go for a run. Because I don't have a reason, and so when you don't have a reason, you have to kind of force yourself, and that's when you get burnt out. And I just don't like to force myself to do anything. I I, I make sure that whatever I'm doing, I am motivated to do. I'm not depending on motivate, but on willpower to do it. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I, and I, and it sounds to me like what's key to that is this question: What is this? What am I doing this for? What am I doing this for? And mm. uh, exploring that. And, and getting clearer on that can, can help build motivation. Right. And that was what I found as a, as a tip here, if you like really powerful one is like, it's all very well, like, okay, we can distinguish between the two and part of, and you can kind of get that. Yeah. Okay. willpower is a finite resource. Um, but then it does beg the question, well, how do I, how do I get motivated then? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, mm. and asking that question sounds like that's key.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm currently developing a, a model or like a framework on motivation, which you know might be a, a future book that I write, because I'm really interested in motivation and uh motivation and behavior change. Are you able to hear me? Okay. My internet connection
0: yeah, yeah. seems yeah. a bit. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. all good. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Motivation and behavior change are a key theme in in all of the books I've written and all of the work I do. Um one of the things I'm noticing about motivation from the research I'm doing is it is as much contextual as it is internal. If, uh, if the contextual factors don't support what you want to do, you will lose motivation very, very easily. So, for example, you know, if you think of the context as being made up of several factors, one is environment, another is people. And another is time. Uh, so, if I use the example of writing that book in 24 hours, uh, environment, I put myself in a hotel, quite a nice, comfortable hotel. There's a Starbucks right next door. I had enough space to do you know, all of the physical activity I needed to do to keep me energized throughout the day. So, the environment supported that. People, um, I had, you know, I, I really respect my friend Yuri. Um, and so, if I told him I was gonna do that uh, and I didn't do it, I, I would feel kind of bad. So I had that kind of accountability and I decided to increase that accountability by going on all of my social media networks and in, a, in the run up to it, telling everyone, I'm gonna write a book in 24 hours. I'm gonna write a book in 24 hours. <laughs> so I, I gave myself a lot of pressure. Um, so I, I had that uh, and then time as well. The time is a really interesting one because It, it, you know, time can be that at certain times you are more motivated than other times. For example, a lot of people find it easier to work out first thing in the morning rather than at the end of the day after work because first thing in the morning they're fresh, they're energized. At the end of the day after work, they're exhausted. So it can be waiting for the right time or it can be making the time um, and, and making sure that in that time, you're only doing this. So setting up the contextual factors uh, can really sustain motivation. And that, that to me is an important part of, of making hard things easy. So you know, as another example, I really like to work out um, and uh, is, I like to do calisthenics, so body weight exercises. And you know, at home, I have these calisthenic rings, which <laughs> you know, they're hanging in my hallway uh, and uh, actually in my bedroom. So whenever I want to, I can just get these rings and I can work out anytime I want to. It's very, very easy to do. Uh, so when you set up the contextual factors uh, to support whatever it is you want to do, the, the motivation is a lot easier to sustain. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that,
0: that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. So. so- so it's both the inner work, right? The what is this mm. for and, yeah. and creating the environment, creating the context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Finding the right reasons, um, making sure, you know, making sure you, you do it in a way that feels good for you. So, I mean, it, I, I, I listed three contextual factors, environment, people, time. The internal factors um, are feelings, goals, and abilities. So, a, a goal is is about what you want for the future. And you know, I want to be healthy. I want to be a bit stronger. Feelings is a. I apologise. It's a bit noisy in my I apartment.
0: Know,
1: <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Okay. Someone's taking care of them. Sorry about that. That's right. So, all right. goals is about what you want want for the future. Uh, And that's where you're activating your imagination to imagine, you know, in the future, I want to be healthy or I want a great, a great career or whatever. And the clearer that vision is, the more motivating it is. If it's abstract, it's not going to be motivating at all. If it's, I want to be healthy, that's not enough. But if it's, I want to feel a lot slimmer and be a lot more mobile and have energy, enough energy to play with my kids, that's a lot clearer then there's feelings which I think are extremely important to listen to, because you you know everyone's body is made up in different in different ways. And feelings come from this biological process called interoception. And interoception is where our nervous system is taking in signals from our internal organs about our current physical state, you know, do we have, you know, is there enough sugar in our blood? Do we have enough energy? Is there enough, you know, are our lungs functioning well enough? And they will then convert these signals into feelings that tell us what our body needs. And it's basically our body's way of, of telling us how to survive. Uh, and if you ignore these feelings, then you're, you're kind of not helping your body get what it needs. So it's really important to listen to those feelings. If I go back to the example of of working out, I used to do weightlifting, but I hated it. I felt terrible when I did it. It just drained the life out of me. And that's why I now do calisthenics because I feel amazing when I do it. And that's just the way my body works. My body doesn't like heavy objects. My body likes moving itself instead of other things. So finding those, the right, uh, you know, the right task that allows you to achieve the goal, but also allows you to feel right as well. And then the other thing is, is ability. If it's too hard to do, you're going to feel terrible when you're doing it. If it's too easy to do, you're probably going to feel bored. It has to be at the right level for, for you to kind of get into a, a state of, you know, I'm challenged, but I can do this and it gets really, really addictive. So the internal factors, goals, feelings, abilities, they have to be aligned. And if they're aligned and the environment, people, and time are all supporting this, then boom, you will, you will skyrocket your way to your goal. Uh, but if one of those factors is out of sync, then it, it starts to fall apart. Right, right. Yeah, that,
0: make, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you talk about that, one of your, your principles that yeah, make hard Make hard things easy is this breaking, breaking tasks down, and that mm. pertains to this ability, right? That if it's too big, if it's too overwhelming, my ability isn't going to match the task. Whereas if I break it down to a baby step, then then I'll have the ability to take each of those one by one.
1: Yeah, uh, there's one really powerful example. Actually, um, there's a book called, I think it's called The Forgotten Highlander by, I'm not sure if I can pronounce his name, Alistair Urukart. Uh, he, it, it, it's a, uh, well, this book is about his experience as a, a soldier in, the, in World War II uh, when he was captured by the Japanese and sent to work on the death railway. And he went through some horrific things. He was <laughs> Uh, you know, was transported to work on on the Death Railway for, I think, two and a half years. He, um, he was in a cargo ship um, whilst they were transporting him to Japan that was then sunk. He was stranded on the sea for five days with no food or water. Uh, then he, he got picked up and taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Japan and was there just as the atomic bomb dropped and actually felt the heat wave pass over him. So his story is, uh, it's um, um, remarkable what he survived. Uh, it's pretty horrific to read, but really remarkable what he survived. And one thing that really stuck with me from his story is on, uh, he, he said that during his time on the railway, every day, his goal was survive this day, survive this day, survive this day had he stopped to think about all of the possible things he was about to experience, that would have been completely overwhelming. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of people would have just committed suicide at that point because they would have thought it's just, it's just horrific. Um, But focusing on just survive survive today, survive today, survive today, that's a lot more achievable. And so when you focus on something that's a lot more achievable, that gives you confidence and that confidence will drive you forward. And it's, you know, it's something I I'm having to do right now on this Shanghai lockdown, because uh, there are some horrific stories about what's going on in this Shanghai lockdown. I'm sometimes worrying if I'm going to be separated from my children, if I'm going to be sent to a quarantine camp um, and how much longer this is going on for. But if I just focus on the next task I have to do, uh, keep my attention on what is the next thing I've got to do. You know, I've got to edit my book. I've got to upload my things for my online course. I've got this cool coming up. Or if I don't have anything to do, then go play with the kids or work out. Just keep focusing on the next thing that stops you from imagining <laughs> all of these horrible possibilities that probably won't even come true. Uh, so focusing just on little small things, there's a lot of benefits to doing that. Yeah, yeah. It reminds
0: me of my time when I was in the twelve-step rooms, and one of the mantras was "Keep it in the day." You know, this is around Mm. alcoholism, right? Like, yeah, don't don't think about not drinking forever, right? Mm. (laughs) Just Mm. today. And the other one that paired with that is you could start your day at any time, right? So even if you you slip up, right, you could choose to start your day at any time and and kind of start fresh. Um. So so you can reset. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I strongly believe in that as well. You you don't have to, you know, if it's too late or whatever, or it's not the right time or whatever, that's all subjective. Um, your day starts whenever you want it to start. And you can start anything whenever you want to start. It's it's all up to you. Uh, on a related note, actually, I I don't know why, but I hate... Christmas and birthdays and any kind of planned celebration, because I didn't plan it. It's not mine. So I, I don't like celebrating these holidays, but uh, I'm happy to celebrate. I just don't see the reason to celebrate those. Um, they're not mine. <laughs> no need to wait for those to celebrate.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking looking here if there's anything else in the book that um kind of caught my oh the other one i think that you touch on is um is this concept of of perfectionism um yeah talk a little bit about perfectionism in the in the context of productivity yeah Uh,
1: i i think you know in, in the context of of the kind of work i do i think perfectionism is arrogance because For example, if you're writing a book, if you're delivering a training, um, I think it applies to any kind of work as well. If you're designing an app and you want to make it perfect, uh, a lot of the time we're defining perfect by our standards. And when we define it by our standards, then we're ignoring who we are doing this for. Uh, This book wasn't written for me. (laughs) It was written for the people who are reading it. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter if I like it or don't like it. What matters is what other people think about it. And so a lot of the time with perfectionism, you will hear people say, I don't think it's good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready yet. That's because they're judging their own work by their own standards. And it's not up to you to decide if it's perfect or not. That's just pure arrogance. Uh, it's up to the end user, the person you're doing it for. And, you, you know, ask them what they think. If they think it's good, then, then it's perfect. If they think it's not good enough, then that's all right. Just do better. <laughs> but don't judge it by your own standards because that's just pure arrogance. Right,
0: right. And then immediately I'm thinking, well, yes, but there must be a balance, right? Like there must be some sense with your own intuition about whether or not something's, Good enough, right? Like, how, how do you strike the balance?
1: Hmm. I, I guess it depends on what you're doing it for. Um, you know, if if there is a certain standard that's really important to you. So, for example, um, no, for me, practical is really really important. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a big, yeah, a big way that Chinese culture has influenced me because Chinese people are extremely practical people and. If my training is not practical they just challenge the hell out of me and and so practical is really important to me and practical means uh tools tips techniques in context and so if i'm going to be writing a blog entry or writing a book or creating a video uh, i want it to be tools tips uh, techniques in context i want it to be practical uh, because that's a standard that that's important to me and The reason it's important to me is because, you know, it seems the people I make it for uh, appreciate that standard as well. And I want to have some kind of consistency. So if you are clear on the reasons you're doing this, uh, you know, on the reasons you have this standard uh, and you know it actually helps you, uh, then that's fine. Um, But if your standards are holding you back, then you need to kind of look at your standards again. And why are my standards stopping me from doing anything at all? I mean, I, I, I honestly know a lot of people who uh, have been writing books for years and years and never want to publish them because you know, I just don't think it's good enough yet. But that's when your standards are holding you back. Your standards are your own enemy. <laughs> so yeah. make your standards your friend. And I, I think that's the way of balancing it. Right. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes a lot of
0: sense. Something else that I, yeah, you, you, your principle number five, which I, I thought would resonate with a lot of people, especially if you're working inside an organization. And I see this a lot of, in organizations. Um, and this is the belief that we can't say no. And this is in the broader context of, you know, examining our limiting beliefs, but that seemed like a personal example, you know, how often are people in a hierarchy um, And they don't feel like they can say no to senior leaders, even though part of them knows that by saying no to this, I'm actually going to be able to please, you know, perhaps the very same senior leader or at least other senior leaders, because it'll give me the space to get something done. Um, Mm. I really like that. Um, And then so examining those beliefs and then that opens up, you know, the possibility of, of, of adopting new beliefs. Mm. So, yeah. So, so yeah, can we explore that in the context of of productivity? Mm.
1: So, you know, for example, saying no, um, here in China, uh, no is, is not a popular word. (laughs) People don't like to say no. It's a very, very hierarchical culture. And, um, one of the values that is hammered in to people from a very very young age is guai, and guai means obedience. It means you are obedient, and you'll say, you know, you'll say to a, ch- a child whenever they do something good, guai, guai, guai. You know, you're being obedient, good boy. Um, and this, uh, you know, this stays with people until adulthood. And I work with a lot of Chinese people working in multinational organisations. A leader will ask them to do something, and they can't do it. It's unreasonable. It's impossible. It doesn't match with what they're experiencing, but they can't say no because that goes against this value of being obedient. And it creates a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And um, it's important to say no uh, because you need to you need to focus on what's really important. You can't do everything. If you never say no, you will overwhelm yourself and your work quality will, will, will decrease. So if you want to say no, um, even in a hierarchical culture like China, a good way of saying no is to first give a good reason as to you know, why I'm not able to do this. It tends to be a lot easier to accept a refusal if the reason comes before. So maybe your boss has asked you to write a report uh, for tomorrow morning. And if you just say no, then they're not gonna be very happy. But if you say, I've got several meetings this afternoon and this evening uh, I've booked some time to uh, go out for dinner with my family. uh, So I don't have time uh, to do it, uh, to write the report before tomorrow morning. If you actually give a valid reason beforehand, then your refusal becomes a lot easier to accept. but what's really, really useful is if after the refusal you offer some kind of alternative, you still stay with this uh, uh, with this attitude of trying to help and trying to serve them, just serving them on reasonable terms so i I can't write the report tomorrow, but I could give it to you tomorrow afternoon. Would that be okay? Or if that doesn't work, I could always ask my colleague to help me. Would that be okay? If you approach it in that way, then you're you're actually not saying no, you're negotiating, and that's pretty reasonable it's a It's a really useful skill to learn. uh so it's important to know what's really important to you uh and what your limits are. And if something comes in that is outside of your limits, then give a good reason, tell them no, and say what else you could do instead. And that way will allow you to to focus a lot more. I I find this is such a simple formula for saying no. Uh, I find it's quite liberating when I share it with people. They're like, oh, that that really works. (laughs) And actually, as an example, last year, I was working with a Chinese HR director, uh, and it was that um, was coming to, uh, I think it was November, So this, sorry, it was 2020, November, 2020, the pandemic had been affecting China for quite some time. So their company was on a hiring freeze. Uh, and then the hiring freeze eased up in November. And the CEO told her, I want you to recruit 120 new people before Chinese New Year, which is in February. And any HR director knows that's just a crazy task because no one in China, no one leaves their job before Chinese New Year. Because if you stay until Chinese New Year, you get a bonus. <laughs> and so no one wants to leave. And her initial her, her gut instinct was to say, you're crazy. That's impossible. But she remembered this formula for saying no. And she said, look, this is the challenge with recruiting that many people at this period of time. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it, but I will do my best. I can't promise I'll get 120 people, but I'll do my best. And in the end, she managed to recruit 70 people and the CEO was quite happy. And then you know, the, all the others, she just recruited in the months afterwards. Um, and so it worked out quite well for her. It's a very simple formula. Uh, but when you use that formula, uh, life just becomes so much easier.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And and you you, you used that example in the context of this it, limiting beliefs, like examining limited limiting beliefs. Mm. Is is there a is there a broader principle at play here as well that you're you're using in like in coming up with that particular formula? Uh, you know, for saying no. Hmm.
1: I think the broader principle is to just be reasonable. It's just to, you know, uh, I, if I say no, if I just say no, I'm not really being reasonable. I'm not giving people a reason to understand why I'm saying no. Um, but if I give a reason and then I, I try to, I, I, I show that I'm trying to help, uh, by offering an alternative, then I think that's being very, very reasonable. Uh, And I think people like, well, not everyone, but a lot of people like reasonable people. (laughs) Uh, Reasonable people are easy to work with and very predictable. So being reasonable, (laughs) having reasons for doing things and trying your hardest to find ways to help people the best in in the best way. uh, Just be reasonable and people appreciate that. So I think that's probably the the higher reaching principle there. Right, right. Yeah, got it. Got it.
0: Good. Well, that was... um yeah those, those are the main points of interest I had around around uh, overcome and get it done. Is, is there anything that you'd have love to bring out you know from from that whole experience of the book or the content of the book itself that mm. perhaps before we move on and to, to your you know, your other interests around storytelling
1: um, I, I think you know, one philosophy I, I believe very strongly in is experimenting um, and that that book was an experiment for me it was an experiment in New ways of, of writing. Uh, and I find when you experiment with things, you learn so much. Uh, I, I think the only way you learn is by doing things. But when you experiment, it's a way of doing things where you, you open doors you've never opened before. And so I got a lot of benefits from doing that. It was completely different to how I wrote my first book and how I wrote, how I'm writing my second, uh, my next book. Um, but I learned new things about productivity, about marketing. I made new friendships as well. I built a lot of confidence in myself. Uh, so I really encourage people to just experiment. It's how, how I learned to speak Chinese. It's how I got my career to where I am today. I think there's a lot of value to be found in just trying something and seeing what happens. (laughs) So just
0: experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how this podcast happened. Right. I just experimented. I signed up. In fact, lots of the principles in your book, right. were, were at play. Cause I, I signed up for this course. I had to produce a, a podcast by the end of the course. I had like a ton of accountability, <laughs> um, you know, like in terms of like, I'd make commitments to how many potential guests I'd re- reach out to, like when I'd get my first recording done by when I'd get the first episode published by, um, mm. yeah, now I reflect on it. Yeah. Mm. many of the principles including that of experimentation were at play in getting the first episode of, of this show out. And now it's, you know, we're over 200 shows. So.
1: Wow. Congratulations. And I I bet, and I bet it just sustains itself now as well. You, I, I you're not using willpower. You're like, Oh, (laughs) I really want to do this. And I've got to do this.
0: That's so true actually. And I think, Yeah yeah you're right but it but even during that even during that first experiment if if i'd have tried to do that by myself i'd have never done it but the fact i knew i had to be on the call the next day and like be accountable for how many like emails i'd sent to potential guests um and this was right in the middle of kids and like sleep deprivation and i was literally like pulling over in laybys, coming home from like trying to yeah. get a wife, you know, a, a phone signal to, like, yeah, log yeah. on to my accountability call. I mean, the whole thing was kind of chaotic in a sense. But, yeah, without, without all of the accountability and the environment, um, I would have never have done it.
1: No, yeah. it's, I have a, a similar story about how I actually ended up in China. And uh, I may very well have never ended up in China if this didn't happen. So I, I was... I, I, I just graduated from university. I was working in a cafe. I was thinking, what the hell has happened with my life? I've done three years at university. And I'm working in a cafe. This is not what I want to be doing with my life. And I had a girlfriend at the time. And on this particular day, I had an argument with her. So I went, I went home and I was just really angry. I thought, ah, the hell with it. I'm going to leave the country. And I, I'd been hearing about teaching English at the time. So I, I went on this website, uh, tafl.com, and I submitted my CV. And a few hours later, I, I thought, okay, I'm probably overreacting here. Um, maybe I don't need to leave the country. But the the next, uh, next morning, I checked my inbox. I had dozens of job offers from schools all over the world, uh, including China. And I thought, this is a little bit too good to to pass up. Maybe I should look into this. And I looked looked through the offers. There was one school in China that really stood out. And um, I sent them an email saying, that looks kind of interesting. Could you tell me more? And they said, yeah, blah, blah, blah. By the way, um, would you be able to come in three weeks? I thought, "Um, okay. (laughs) And... Uh, and because it was all in such a rush, from there I didn't have time to stop and think about what I was doing. And three weeks later, I was in China, <laughs> and it was only a few weeks after I'd arrived in China that I realized what the hell have I done? <laughs> I'm in China, but I didn't stop to think about it. I just did it. And uh, I'm the kind of person that likes to think a lot before I do things. Had I spent that time thinking, I wouldn't be here. And um, my life has turned out really, really well since then. I have a great career. I've met my wife. Um, you know, my business is going very well. So uh, yeah, <laughs> just because I got in a strop <laughs> really paid
0: off. <laughs> wow. And I guess you ended up in China single, right? I did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I had to have a conversation before I left. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, just diving in experimenting yeah Yeah, that's 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 a great great story yeah Um, yeah yeah um in fact i have a a similar teaching english story i saw an advert to go teach english in in africa in a magazine on on the back parcel shelf of a friend of mine's car i was coming Mm. back from a nightclub drunk and found this (laughs) article uh or found this advert yeah very similar And a a week later i'd I'd called the number and like wow. whatever it was, like three or four months after that, I'm like teaching in a school in, wow. in Tanzania. <laughs> teaching like a whole group of African kids English. Well, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't doing English. I was teaching maths and physics. Yeah. Uh,
1: I'm, I'm sure that led to lots of other things as well.
0: Well, yeah, yeah I guess a big adventures around Africa. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, yeah, no, was, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was fun. And setting up the very first national volleyball. In fact, it led to me, me and a friend setting up the very first national volleyball contest in Tanzania <laughs> at that time. I created a, a volleyball same tour. Same. <laughs> and I got my first ever international rugby clap- cap. My one wow. and only full game of rugby turned out to be an wow. international. And I <laughs> played against Kenya for Tanzania. But, anyway. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, no, you're right. It did lead to some pretty extraordinary experiences. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I know of a a number of other people with similar stories, you know, they, they tried something just out of chance and then boom, (laughs) it's led to where they are now. I I think Mm. there's a lot of value to be had in just experimenting with things and seeing where it takes you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, that's, that's right. And good. So let's talk about storytelling. Um, you, Mm. And it's almost, it's almost as if, in some ways, right, you, these books are following what seems to me sort of trends in, if you like, certainly within in corporate development, you might say, because I, I, there's definitely been historically a big focus on productivity, and there continues to be. And, you know, mm. naturally, one would assume that firms are kind of interested in the productivity of their stuff. Um, and yet there is this burgeoning, it seems to me, trend around storytelling and the importance of t- t- storytelling. Um, and I, so I guess my first question is, do you notice that? I'm, I'm, and if so, why, why do you think there is this it's seeming, you know, strong interest yeah. in storytelling right now in, in, the sort of corporate circles?
1: Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I've, I've especially felt this kind of trend in storytelling over the last five years. It was literally five years ago. I, I started getting requests. For, for storytelling training over here. Uh, and I'd, I'd already been doing a lot of soft skills and leadership development programs, but five years ago was when I really started to get a lot of requests for it for some reason. But I think the reason storytelling is such a hot topic is because storytelling is essentially the language of the mind. The way stories work is by talking to the mind. And if you study how stories work, uh, you, you basically learn about how the mind works. Uh, and a great book, by the way, for anyone listening, is The Science of Storytelling by William Storr, uh, who's a fantastic author. He's just released another book. I think it's called The Status Game. Um, and uh, reading through The Science of Storytelling, uh, a lot of what he comes back to is the science of consciousness and how we perceive things and there's also um bits about uh social uh well our social nature and uh, the importance of status and and this also talks a bit about how how accountability works for for motivating us and so on uh, so there's a lot of uh a, a, well there's a lot of psychology behind storytelling, and uh it, I find it's just so much easier to think of it as the language of the mind. And so to get a bit more specific, uh, in, in my book, The Story Habit, which I'll be publishing in July, I, I obviously, I talk about how to tell stories, but a lot more of it is about how to shape the stories that people believe in. And there's this fable that I use in the book and I've been using in a lot of the workshops I've been training, which I think really covers it. And you know, I'll share it quickly. It's like a two-minute yeah. fable. But uh, imagine since you were born, you've grown up and lived your whole life in this village and this village in the middle of a forest. And in this village, it has absolutely everything you need. It's got all the crops you need. One family raises chickens and another raises cows. You've got all the food you need. There's a stream running through it. So you have all the water you need. One family makes clothing and so on. Every family comes together to support each other. So Everything you've ever needed is in this village. And every morning when you wake up, you pray to the village for protection for today. And every evening when you go to bed, you thank the village for protecting you another day. And every time it's someone's birthday, you'll all celebrate together and thank the village for letting them live another year and so on. And surrounding the village is this forest that is so dark with well, it's so dense with trees that uh, people call it the dark forest. And they have a lot of stories about the dark forest. They say that if you go in there, then dragons will eat you, or you'll be picked up by giant eagles, or swallowed whole by trees. Uh, and so that is why you've never, ever, ever wanted to leave this village. Uh, it, it's always been terrifying thinking about going into the dark forest. And when you were younger, One of your friends, he went into the dark forest and he never, ever returned. And his family, you know, his name was Try, (laughs) and his family mourned Try's loss for many, many months. But fast forward 30 years, you've been living your life every day, thanking the village, praising the village, doing what you're supposed to do, listening to the elders. And all of a sudden, this man walks out from the forest and says, My name is Try. And 30 years ago, I walked into this forest and got lost, but I discovered a beautiful world. And now I want to share with you the tales of what this beautiful world has to offer you. And the fable ends there. And in in the book and also in in the training that I do, I I challenge people to think about if you were this guy who walked out of this village, how would you persuade the villagers to go with you? (laughs) And this is all about the power of storytelling. Um, it's not just about the stories you tell. It's about working with the forces that have shaped the stories people believe in. Uh, and so that, uh, I think the fable really captures the, the, uh, the essence of this. And there's a lot, of, a lot of techniques and so on involved in getting the villagers to go with you.
0: Right. And I'm guessing one of the well, is it right that one of them is, is listening to the stories that they already
1: have? Bingo. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that is the most important thing. And it is the thing, in my experience, most people don't do enough of. And the framework I share in the story habit is, is very simple, relate, challenge, resolve. First, relate to them before you challenge them, and then resolve any uncertainty that prevents them from taking action. And relate, challenge, resolve is also the structure of any story, because any story will always present a character that you can relate to. And then this character will encounter a challenge, and they will change as a result of the challenge. And then they have to resolve the challenge. And the first step, just like you say, is relate. You can't just come in and say, hey, there's a beautiful world out here. Come with me. i like, who the hell are you? I, <laughs> no. I, that's a nervous laugh from me in recognition of how many times I've fallen into that. Well, it, even, even I've done that as well. And actually quite recently, um, which is embarrassing because I've written a lot in my book about it. and. One example is I was catching up with my friend over a coffee um, and he brought his new Chinese girlfriend with him and we hadn't seen each other for a while. And he was asking me how I was doing. I was saying, I'm doing good, but man, kids there's so much hard work. They're so relentless. And I just can't get a break. And Oh my God, give me a break. And I was always complaining about my kids. Um, his Chinese girlfriend kind of got, the, she, she got kind of triggered by what I was saying. She said, having kids is an honor. It's a privilege. You should be happy to have kids. And, you know, I, I don't like people who have excessive levels of positivity. I don't have much tolerance for it. I'm, I'm a realist. And so I said, well, yeah, of course, I love my kids. And yeah, it's great, but it's really hard work and we have to be realistic and we have to vent if we're really frustrated. That's all I'm doing. My friend kind of wised up to what was going on and he changed the subject. But an hour later, when his Chinese girlfriend left, he shared with me, "You know, she she had to go off somewhere else. He shared with me, you know, Jamie, when she was born... She was abandoned by her parents and she was really lucky to get adopted. And I realized in that moment that I hadn't related to her. Her trigger, her being triggered by what I said, was a sign of a different story that I wasn't listening to. And just like you said, if I'd stopped to listen to, you know, why is this important to you? I, I, you know, there would have been something for me to learn. I, I would have expanded my, my awareness and. I miss that opportunity, uh, and I think it's something we a lot of us do in default mode. Uh, we don't listen; we just enforce our story on other people. And this is the you know first. Uh, well, I think it's the second quarter of my book is all about relating and and, and the importance of listening, uh, because I think good storytellers as well uh, are actually good listeners, because they know that any story is ultimately about the audience. If the audience can't relate to the story, uh, then they don't want to listen to the story. So listening, relating, it's a fundamental skill, in my opinion. Right,
0: right. And and I suppose that's why we tend to find that the great artists, the great writers do have this great ability to the great empaths ability to relate ability to listen. Um, yeah, I remember something, you know, she could, what, what did they say? Amy Winehouse, right. The famous British singer, somebody said of her, you know, she could hear the grass grow, right. Like this sensitivity to, um, to, to the environment, to what's there. And then building the stories from out from, from that.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at, for example, Disney, I think Disney is a great example because any child in the world has watched a Disney movie and any adult, um, whether they will own up to it or not, has enjoyed a Disney movie and still enjoys a Disney movie from time to time. And it's no coincidence that people enjoy Disney movies. I'm pretty sure they have these executives who have hundreds of millions of dollars being invested into them uh, with their sole focus being on researching their audience and understanding what life experiences is their audience going through right now. I think, uh, you know, we were watching, my wife and I and my kids, we were watching the, the Disney movie Brave the other day. And my wife was commenting um, that, oh, you know, it's really interesting how so many Disney movies are about girls who break from tradition where people are telling them to get married and they're now these independent warriors. Brave was like that. I think Frozen was like that as well. And that's a reflection of what people are going through in society right now. Um, you know, we had the Me Too movement. Women have a lot more freedom and independence these days than they, than they used to. Um, and so uh, any, any company involved in storytelling will be spending a lot of time looking at their audience. What forces are shaping their audience's experiences right now? And how can we relate to that? And that, that's, how, that's how they make so much money, I guess, because they relate. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And then
0: I think you've got the, the the recent examples with Disneyland and Disney World in the States. I don't know if you followed it, where they've mm. stopped saying boys and girls as a greeting. And of course, mm. this has created a lot of political controversy. Yeah, and um, and uh, and actually, they've they've, from what I there's protests outside the gates and the parks are not as <laughs> as populated, um, because they're they're probably getting ahead of a lot of their core audience, right? Mm, I guess
1: so. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I haven't read about it. that. But, yeah, I haven't read about that, but it sounds like they maybe misjudged that <laughs> a bit. Maybe that. Maybe they thought their audience would appreciate that, and maybe they didn't. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: so it cut, of course it cuts away space but it's it's the same point right if you're misreading
1: your yeah. audience <clears throat> to begin oh, with you, you know i mean um, I, I remember i i worked in a small consulting company uh about ten years ago and um at the time we had this customer relationship management system uh which it was wasn't perfect, but the salespeople they knew how to use it and they go to, uh, out to sales meetings and they would Come back and they type up their notes in this system. And um, we had this new director of operations. I'll just call him Barry, not his real name, but <laughs> Barry. He, um, he came in and he had this background in IT and he could code and make software and so on. And he said to the general manager, I can make you a much better system that will allow you to track all of the outgoing expenses, cash flow, everything. Um, and you know it will be everything in one system, and of course the general manager loves that. So he went ahead and made this new system. And when he introduced it, uh, the, it turned out that the salespeople's workload had basically trebled, uh, tripled, because before it was just uploading notes. Now it was like I have to, oh, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, and have, have to do this. It wasn't made for them, the user. It was made for the general manager. And long story short, Barry had to leave the company after a while. It, it got to a stage where the salespeople hated him so much. He actually couldn't travel to other offices. They, they, they were so hostile to him. And uh, he left the company and the, the, the system was, um, was replaced with the older system. Uh, and, and the lesson there was exactly the same. He didn't stop to relate to the people who would be using the system. He was just thinking about himself and the general manager's needs. Uh, And I think it's a common issue uh, in in leaders in particular, but people in general too. If you don't stop to relate to whoever is important in whatever it is you're doing, then you're going to have problems. (laughs) So relating is really, really important. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And once you've established that relationship and you are related, what's this the challenge? Right, that's that's the yeah. second uh, so, phase here.
1: Yeah. So so relating is so where you go into the village, you sit down with them, you listen to them. You know, this guy, try. You used to be in the village, but you've been away for thirty years. What's changed? What are people thinking? Challenging is where you challenge people's current position. And you know, the current position is they're in the village. And you either point out the, the flaws of staying in this position or and or you give them the benefits of moving through the dark forest with you moving to this new position. It's, it, it's as simple as that. And a good example is with Steve Jobs' iPhone presentation in 2007. There's one part in particular, which I think is a really good example of this where he displays like a Motorola or a Blackberry and some other, I think it was a Nokia smartphone of the time. And he he said, you know, uh, this is what we have right now. And the problem is in this bottom 40%. And he's pointing to the keyboards and he's saying how, you know, they're here, whether you need them or not, and they're fixed in plastic and you can't change them. And so he's pointing to the current state in 2007. That's what smartphones were like. And at this point, I think a lot of people hadn't actually thought this is a problem. <laughs> they, they hadn't thought it's a problem. So he, he first starts pointing out what the problem is with the current state. And then he introduces the iPhone and look, the whole screen, there's no keyboard. The keyboard pops up on the screen when you need it and you use your fingers Now he's presenting a future state that is better than the than the the current state. So challenging is is essentially just that. It's just uh, what's wrong with your current state and what's better about this present uh, about this future state. Um, The the problem of challenging is a lot of people will do that automatically, but if you don't relate first, they don't want to hear you. So it's only when you relate first that people will open up to you. And there's a really good example of um, Simon Sinek, actually. Uh, And and if you want to see this relate, challenge, resolve model in action, uh, just watch the Simon Sinek millennial question talk. I think a lot of people have watched this by this point. And just for the record, I'm actually not a big fan of Simon Sinek. I think he speaks a lot of hot air. But he is very, very good at relating to his audience. And he's talking about millennials. And first off, he starts off by, with a word, apparently. Apparently, millennials are blah, 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 and lists all of the complaints people have had about them. But this, this word apparently lets them know that he's on their side. He doesn't believe in these. And he talks about life experiences they've had when you had, they've had parents who've just praised them for anything. Uh, and they've had leaders who haven't really given them jobs for purpose and blah, blah, blah. And you can actually look in the audience, there's, there's clips of people in the audience, and they're looking and they're, they're nodding their heads. And the, the head nod is a sign that you're relating. But then he challenges them. And then he says, but you know, you've got problems. If you wake up and check your phone before you speak to your loved one, then you have an addiction. And if you keep doing this and you'll go on to live a life of, with no joy and so on and so on. And that's the challenging thing. He's related to their stories, He's got them nodding their heads. Now he starts challenging them. And in the end, he resolves where he, he gives them some suggestions on how to make small talk and how to turn off their phones and and so on. <laughs> it's just a masterclass in Relate, Challenge, Resolve. Uh, a very good example of it.
0: Right, right. And yeah. And I guess, whatever you think of him, the guy's got you know, millions of followers, haven't you? And I know somebody saw that talk. I've not actually seen it, but a friend of mine said it and he, he showed it to some of his, he's not a millennial, but some of his millennial staff. And they said how they found it so patronizing. So I guess, <laughs> I guess there's at least some. Yeah, well, it just goes just goes to show, I suppose, there's an art to this. Well, a, there's an art to it, yeah. and, and b, you're not going to please all the people all the time.
1: But it, it, exactly, and I, I think um, uh, his, his, I, I think the audience it appealed to perhaps were millennial uh, American millennials in particular, right. um, and millennials from other cultures perhaps not so. The, the issue I, I have with Simon Sinek actually is. I find he, he's amazing at relating, not so good at challenging and resolving. Uh, and I, I think if you watch his, um, his original TED Talk about, was it The Power of Why or something? Mm. Um, he talks about it made the him goal. famous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is a really good TED Talk. But it's a lot of relate. Just, uh, his message is, um, you know, uh, there's, more to, there's more to business and profit. Business should be about purpose, not just profit. And that's, that's, that's something a lot of people want to believe. Um, and so it's really easy to uh, appeal to people when you just relate to what they want to believe. I'm sure there is some, there's a lot of truth to that. But I think reality is a lot more complicated than, you know, if you have a business that's all about purpose, it doesn't guarantee your business will survive. <laughs> profit is also kind of important. Cash flow more so. There's a lot more to business than just purpose. <laughs> um, and and if you wanted to be a, you know, if you wanted to be a snake oil salesman or, or a con artist, you would just do an amazing job of relating. It would be so easy to go into that village and say, hey, you guys know there are dragons in this forest. If you buy this for me, it will protect you from the dragons. And you know, they're going to be nodding their heads because you're relating to them. but. But uh, it's important to do more than just relating if you actually want to change people.
0: Yeah, and no, I guess that, that's so true, isn't it? And, and you then exploit that understanding. You exploit mm. that understanding. Because I also read something recently that there's a decent proportion of sociopaths who are actually very empathic. And that's mm. the worst type, right? <laughs> <laughs> because they, 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 they understand how much pain they're causing as they sociopathically manipulate you because they've got such empathy. Um, but, but yes, I think that ability to tune in, connect, um, but then use that understanding to exploit, I suppose, is the dark side of this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of con artists online these days who are selling their online courses on how to make lots of money, how to get rich quick. Um, and one, one of the first things that you'll see in a lot of their adverts is, uh, this is not about how to get rich quick. Uh, you won't be making millions and millions, but maybe you'll be like me and making hundreds of thousands a month. I'm like <laughs> trying to make it sound more realistic because they know people don't want to hear get rich quick anymore, but it's still the same thing. <laughs> so con artists are amazing at relating, um, but good people do more than just relate. They also challenge um, people as well. Right. And then, and then the resolution, what, what is there mm. to say about that? So when you challenge people and if you challenge people successfully, um, you change their minds, you get them to agree with you, but that's not enough to take action. Um, to take action, you have to resolve whatever it is that's preventing action. Uh, a really interesting example when I was researching my book was was actually the Me Too movement, um, because with the Me Too movement, I you know I thought Me Too started in 2017, but as I was looking into it, I discovered it actually started in 2006. Um, I, I can't remember the lady's name is it Tanya Burke or something something like that. She started the Me Too movement in 2006, but obviously it didn't have as big of an impact at that time. It was only in 2017 when all of a sudden this tsunami of cultural change happened. And um, there, what happened, there were a lot of reasons that that happened. Um, But what essentially happened was it suddenly, it just became so much more worthwhile taking action. Because before this tweet from Alessa Milano mm-hmm. in 2017, if, uh, if a victim of sexual abuse wanted to talk, uh, speak up, they'd probably have to go to speak to the police. They'd have to have an embarrassing interview where they revealed a lot of awkward details. They might believe that nothing would happen um, and uh, they might believe even bad things would happen to them if they came out about it. People wouldn't believe them. People would criticize them and say they were asking for it. So the the cost of taking action and the benefit of taking action, the, the ratio just wasn't in their favor. But all of a sudden, all we have to do is tweet me too. And then the benefits are enormous. And it, that's that's resolving uh, in two, Why wasn't it so effective in 2006? And why all of a sudden is it so effective? Because the cost benefit ratio has changed and now people will take action. But me, me too, the reason it's so interesting is, is why the situation changed. Um, there's a number of factors. Uh, One is probably the person initiating it, Alyssa Milano, uh, an actress with a large following and therefore some kind of influence. Two is the uh, the platform Twitter didn't really exist in 2006. All of a sudden, it's really easy to spread the word. But more importantly, was some cultural factors that happened. Um, uh, 2017 was just after the Trump election. And you know, regardless of if people support Trump or not, it appeared at that time, a lot of people didn't support Trump and were really, really uh, shocked with how Trump had become their leader. And they felt, wow, we, we can't just be passive anymore. We have to take action. And there was a lot of protesting going on. Uh, and uh, And so that created a social environment where people believed that We have to take action about these issues. Otherwise, things are going to get really, really bad. And I think there's one other factor, which was, I think, a month before Alyssa Milano put out that tweet. I think Harvey Weinstein had, you know, his allegations had surfaced and he was fired from his company and investigations started happening. And so people could see that a man with as much power as Harvey Weinstein He, uh, you know, even he can be held accountable for this. So, all of these factors changed people's beliefs. And then Alyssa Milano just dropped the final little bit of the puzzle, just tweet the words, Me Too, a minimal cost action with enormous benefits. And it never happened before. And all of a sudden, (laughs) a lot of action. Um, and that's what Resolve is all about. It's just, why aren't people acting and how, how can we how can we change that? Right,
0: right. and so the, your job as as storyteller is is to point them towards the best action is that is that right or, or a valuable
1: action? yeah, it's to inspire them to take a valuable action um, but I, I think a really important job of really effective I I, maybe not use the word storyteller, but influencers is to understand and observe what factors are shaping the stories people believe in and work with those. And, you know, before Me Too, people believed it's it's just not worth speaking up. Nothing's going to happen and it's going to go through bad things. But now the conditions have changed and people's beliefs are starting to change. And if you can notice that, then you can say the right words at the right time and boom, action. And another example is, I watched a a Netflix documentary about a month ago about Neymar, the the footballer. And he shared a really interesting example. When when he was younger, uh, one time his dad pulled him aside and just berated him. Uh, and said, "Why didn't you? Why didn't you run in that match?" And he said, "Well, my teammates weren't running, so I didn't run." And he said, "You son of a gun! You outrun your teammates. You run so fast that you motivate them to run." And it, uh, it, it, in the documentary, Neymar shares that that moment stayed with him uh, and has stayed with him to this day. And it was taking, it, you know, as his father taking advantage of a particular moment where he noticed the conditions were in place and all he needed to do was just drop a few words at just the right time and action. (laughs) And so I think a really important job of a storyteller is to pay attention to that context. And that actually goes back to what I was talking about earlier about productivity and context impact on motivation. If you can also notice what's happening around people at the moment, what factors are shaping their beliefs and desires, pay a really hard attention to that. And then all you need to do is say a few magic words at just the right moment and action. And that, that, that's what I think makes a really powerful storyteller. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to get, get the picture. Mm. Um, do you have any examples from your
0: own sort of cor- corporate life? Um, that you can share, maybe you personally, or what you've observed in in the working context?
1: Yeah. I mean, one example is a bit of an ironic example at the moment. Um, I was working with a financial consulting company um, a few years ago, (coughs) and they they have an office in a, a city called Hangzhou, which is not too far away from Shanghai. And their headquarters is in the U.S. And this was during 2020, when the pandemic was at its height in the US. But in China, China actually kind of recovered kind of fast. Well, what's happening in Shanghai now is, 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 is a bit weird. Um, but in 2020, you know, we had about a month of lockdown and it exited China's borders. And then China went back to life as normal, just with closed borders. And life was completely normal. Uh, people were walking around in shopping malls with no face masks. Um, public transport was fine, you could go out to a restaurant. You could just do whatever you wanted apart from traveling internationally. So you had all of these people in this office in Hangzhou who were looking at their friends in other companies, um, who were just living life as normal. But in Hangzhou, the U S headquarters had these really, really strict requirements. Uh, you had to wear a face mask at all times in the office. Um, was one requirement and another was that you could only work in the office two weeks at a time and then you have to go home and work, work two weeks at home and so on. And they were just getting sick of these restrictions because there wasn't really any need for it. And they were getting really jealous of their colleagues and of their friends and other companies who could just live life as normal. And actually it was starting to have a really big impact on morale because, People just didn't, you know. People had allergic reactions. They were just tired of it all, and some people actually started leaving the company. So, um, one of the HR managers she tried um, talking to the US headquarters, and she said, uh, she said to them, uh, "We don't like these restrictions. Can you ease them up, please?" And naturally, the, U- the, the U.S. directors were like, well, no, <laughs> the, the pandemic is still ongoing. It's still really, really dangerous. We need to have these restrictions in place. So her attempt wasn't successful. But when I was coaching her, what became really apparent was that she was not relating in the slightest. She, she was not thinking about their situation. Her directors in the U.S. at that moment were at the height of the pandemic in the U.S. All around them. Friends were getting it. People were dying. Um, it was really, really bad. And they weren't hearing anything in the news about how normal China was. They didn't know, they didn't know China was normal. They thought China was exactly the same as them. And so um, when she started to think a little bit more about what's going on with their perspective, she realized, whoa, they don't understand anything about China's situation. And so the solution for her in the end was to relate china's situation to them she went out to shopping malls at lunchtime and took photos she collected anecdotes from friends and uh she presented them and she even collected some of the complaints uh she showed some statistics about how turnover had been affected. when she showed these things to her u.s directors the u.s directors were finally oh, wow, <laughs> we didn't realize that, that China was actually normal and we didn't realize this was causing a problem. Thank you for sharing with us. And uh, yeah, we better, we better ease up some of these restrictions. And again, it was because she didn't relate. Uh, she didn't think from their perspective and she didn't try to show them the situation on the ground in China. Or as soon as she thought from their perspective and then showed them what's actually happening That challenged their current perspective, and then they could move into a discussion on the resolve section. How do we ease up these uh, these policies and make life better for people? Yeah, yeah, And that makes sense. And and another way of
0: looking at it is 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 as a leader, she led them. She led them to a new
1: um, course of action.
0: Your child, children, that's fine.
1: (laughs) My kids are being noisy. Yes, she she did. She had, to, um, she had to think a lot more from their perspective and really show. And, and again, that, that's a key principle in storytelling. Show, don't tell. Um, if you keep telling people, you know, we're not happy, can you change it? It doesn't have an impact. She, she actually had to take pictures and show them what's actually happening and the problem this is causing and how it's unnecessary. It's only when she showed them that it started to have an impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I guess in the absence of in there, she's got physical ab- ab- evidence. She's got photos, uh, but I guess as a storyteller, you can also the show can can mean illustrate with words, right? Build pictures in people's minds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, when it comes to showing, I, I think there's four ways of showing. Um, words are if you use vivid words. So don't say my boss was angry. Say my boss threw his laptop out the window. You use vivid words that paint pictures. That's something you can always do. And it's a great habit to develop is actually one of the story habits. Hence why I call it the story habit. Another is to give a lot of examples, actually tell stories, but two more, even more effective ways. One is to demonstrate to people. Um, don't say anything, just demonstrate. And another is to provide experiences, uh, so demonstrating, if you go to a yoga class, the yoga teacher will be in front of you demonstrating instead of telling you. And providing experiences, if you go to an Apple store, you can experience the product for yourself without them telling you. These are much more effective ways of showing. Uh, and so I think great storytellers know that, you know, sometimes you got to let people experience things or you've got to demonstrate things to people and then they will get it rather than just listening to me talk. Yeah. 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 No.
0: And, and I get thinking about habits I love, right. Um, you know, one of our most recent guests was talking about, well, he's a complexity researcher and how human beings are habits. You know, mm. as a, I, you could think of humans, sorry, as a, as a complex process. We can think of human beings as, as complex processes and mm. complex processes are made up of habits. One of the ways we can think about a complex process is it is a collection of, patterns or, or we might say habits. And so yeah. if we consider ourselves to be a complex process, how can I intervene in my own process well, It's But through <laughs> changing my habits? Right. So this idea yeah. of thinking of ourselves as, as a collection of habits, I think can be powerful. And so this idea of, of, of picking yeah. up habits of, sto- of story, of storytelling, I, I like.
1: I, I think one story habit, my favorite story habit is to just notice change. And noticing change, uh, the reason this is a good habit is because any story is always about a change. Uh, it's never about, you know I woke up, I got in the subway, went to work, came home. It's never about life as normal. It's always about something changed. And we experience a lot of changes every single day. Uh, you know, Sam lockdown is a change I'm going through right now, which is why you can hear my kids running around, screaming in the background. And when change happens, there are stories to be found within these changes. So um, a simple way of becoming a really good storyteller is to build a story pool in our memories uh, of changes that have happened. And then when we need to tell a story, maybe we need to explain something to someone. Maybe we need to teach something. Uh, Maybe we need to answer a question we can go into our story pool and pull out a story that we can use. And, you know, the more you pay attention to the changes that happen in your life, the more stories you will have in your story pool. And the more you actually take these stories out and practice with them, the better they will get. Because the first time you tell a story is never the best time. <laughs> it's, it's only when you tell the story and then, oh, they didn't go so well. And you try it again, you know, that theme of trying and experimenting you refine the story and then it gets better and so on. And it all starts with that one simple habit of just noticing change. Whenever there's a change in your life, that's an opportunity to tell a story and to develop your storytelling skills. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that.
0: Um, any, any other habits to, to share or do you, do you want to save that for people where they, when they buy the book?
1: I think maybe one... Final habit I can share, which comes to mind at the moment, um, is to regain awareness, uh, because, uh, a really useful application of storytelling is when you're trying to teach people how to do things. Um, you know, maybe you're a manager and you feel your employee is not very good at communicating. And so you want, you know, you want to tell them get better at communicating, but then they don't understand what you're saying. Uh, And a a problem when we try to teach people something is we don't know how to do it ourselves. We just tell people, you know, get better at giving feedback or next time, make sure your presentation is better. We don't actually know how, (laughs) how to do it. We just know what we want them to do. And uh, if we're already good at that, uh, and we've probably forgotten how we do it, then regain awareness, observe yourself in action. How do you do that? When you give people feedback, how are you doing that? What are you doing first? What are you doing second? When you stand up and give a good presentation or you tell a story, how are you doing that? What are the steps you're following? And once you regain awareness of the steps you're following, then you can break it down into little steps and explain one at a time. And again, it's that habit of just... Regaining awareness, observing yourself in action to regain awareness, and then everything becomes easier to explain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Being, being conscious, being aware in a moment, mindful, right? Which <laughs> you talk a little bit about in the, in the productivity book. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Okay. Wow. Well, I feel like we've had a, a tour of at least two major <laughs> themes in your, in your career and your work. Um, So i really appreciated that. Um, Thank you. Anything you'd like to leave uh, our viewers with uh, before Um, we close out, or viewers or listeners?
1: Yeah. um, uh, Well, yeah, I guess just uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Just search for Jamie Dixon. You'll see my face on an orange background or just go to my website, shapingpaths.com. Um, and you can find my contact details there. Uh, and the book, The Story Habit, will be available in July. Uh, so, yeah, follow me on LinkedIn. And, um, you'll see when it gets published. <laughs> right, yeah.
0: And I guess right, right now you're available in Shanghai physically and you'll be soon yes. returning
1: to the UK. Is, is, that, is that right? Yes, yes. Within the next six <sighs> months, roughly, if everything goes to plan. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I felt like I've uh, learned a ton uh, in the last, whatever it's been, you know, 70, 80 minutes. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank
0: no, you. Thank you. Great. All right. Thank you.
1: The Being Human podcast
0: was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.